This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. It's hour three. Let's get into some spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is Spy Time. We got Mike Baker with us now. He is a former CIA covert operations officer and president of Diligence LLC, a global intelligence and security firm. He is at MB Company Man on Twitter. Mike, great to have you. Oh, thanks, Buck. Good, uh, good talking to you. It's been a while since we last got together. Yeah, brother, it's good good to hear from you. So let's. I want to get your your the rundown with you on a whole bunch of things here. First off, the the news from the last twenty four that we have to hit this commutation of Manning sentence. You had a top secret clearance. I had a top secret clearance. What do you think about all this? Uh, well, I think it's disgusting. I think it's uh, shameful. I think it's um, unfortunately it's not surprising. So I think maybe that start out that way, uh, but it. Um, it's, it, it's, I think Obama's pandering to the hard left at its worst, I think is what's happened here. And, you know, given how upset he was and continues to be over the hacking of the Podesta emails and DNC, um, apparently that's where he draws the line. He doesn't draw the line at handing over a trove of classified documents that then resulted in a variety of bad things for people uh, for our national security interests. And the Obama administration's rationale for this, you think, is what? I mean, do you think the LBGTQ aspect of formerly Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, the the politics around that played a big role in this? Or do you think that this might have happened even without uh, Mr. Manning's transition? So I think it it played a role. I don't know that it was a big role, but I think it undoubtedly, I think anyone who says it didn't, I think it's just... Uh, being willfully naive. I think it played a role. I think the fact that he tried to off himself a couple of times, um, you know, probably did that. It created sort of this, this image of this poor, uh, mistaken, you know, confused waif um, that, uh, you know, if it was a, a less sympathetic, perhaps, character for that, you know, portion of society that looks at that and says, oh, my God, we have to help this individual. Um, so I think that played a role. I think um, – it's also it's it's an indication, I think, that the the, the outgoing president uh, never really has had either an appreciation, perhaps a full understanding of of how um, how the world out there works. You know, I, I mean, I think I, I'm not saying he's not a smart guy; he's a very smart guy. Um, but I think, in real terms, you know, to dismiss what Manning did and the consequences of that and what happened. Um, I think shows either 
to willful ignorance or, or a naivete. Now, what's your take as as a former uh, agency ops guy, Mike? What's your take on the former MI6 individual who is reportedly, based on what we see in the news, behind this dossier, the dossier, which is now the word everyone has to use for this, on yes, Trump? Yeah. This the, this whole thing seemed super sketchy to me from go. And I'll be honest, you know, the inclusion of this information in an intel briefing also struck me as odd beyond explanation unless there was something political going on. But I want your take on on just that whole situation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the look. I I, I spent, what, 17 years um, with the agency and the operations group. I spent uh, since then, you know, over a dozen years building up a a private intelligence organization um, in the commercial sector that has offices in London and a variety of places around the world. Um, I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and the U.K. I started my private business with a very good friend of mine who came out of the uh, British Intel Service. I guess the reason for saying all that is I know the, the world pretty well. And I can tell you that the world of political opposition research is full of sketchy, dodgy individuals putting out a lot of crap. And um, so... First of all, the material itself, or the dossier, I guess you're right, we have to use that term, is, uh, is, is just a, it's, it's a load of crap. And um, I love the idea that you know, the, the, the media that was desperate to show how serious this dossier was, um, they, they also, part of their narrative was, well, but look, uh, Christopher Steele, he, he was so concerned about the information that he worked for free for a period of time. Well, of course he did, because no one's going to pay him for this crap. So... You know, I, I think there's that to, to, to start with. I agree with you that including it was – I've never heard or seen something like that before, where you would take um, something that was so lacking in credibility, lacking in backing and sourcing, and, and fold it into a very, very serious top-level uh, intelligence briefing. And, so and just that, to, to, so to add this in, Mike, that's already – out there by everyone's admission in the public domain circulating on the unclassified side between people's private email accounts all over dc right so it wasn't even yeah, yeah. this we can't verify this but hey this is super sensitive no one's heard of this you should know about it it was yeah this has been making the rounds for months a lot of journalists have it just wanted to just want to give you a heads up it just seemed bizarre yeah it is it is bizarre there's no other way to put it and and the, the idea that you know we've we've heard uh, that was uh, given, the reason was given was that, you know, somehow we just wanted to make sure that the president-elect was aware of this information and could, what, act on it. Uh, you think, <laughs> so what are you talking about? I, I think it's, you know, that, that part of it uh, is, is very uh, odd. But, uh, and again, I'd, it's above my pay grade to figure out why their specific reasons, or what their specific reasons actually were for doing it. Maybe they were, who knows, maybe they were just being thorough and they thought, well, we'll do this and, uh, but I'm, it's, it's, I can't think of any other word for it. It's just really, really odd. Wouldn't be the first time if it happened that my fellow analysts made a, made a boo-boo, but I digress. Uh, Mike, I want to ask you about the <laughs> incoming. Yeah, we've, we've been known to make a mistake here and there, as you know. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about the incoming Trump team. New York Times today writing a piece because anything that makes the Trump administration look bad before it's even administration uh, makes the New York Times look good, I suppose. Trump mm-hmm. national security team gets a slow start. They're saying they're, that the Obama administration has written 275 
briefing papers, over a thousand pages of classified material, according to the Times here. And they don't know if the Trump people have read any of it. And they're saying that the whole transition on the national security side is a mess. What do you think? Well, I think that's not correct. Um, I know some of the folks that are coming in and filling in slots in the sort of the second and third tier. Um, and, you know, they're very good people. They're very focused. They've got a lot of drive and, and you know, they uh, they're very professional. So um, I, I sort of this the self-righteous attitude of the uh, of the Obama administration about the transition is it's a lot of crap as well. But the, the Bush administration um, and uh you know, I, I know a lot of the folks that were in the, the previous administration, they did an outstanding job of, of paving the way for President Obama to come in um, after his, his first election win. And, I mean, they worked uh, their asses off to ensure that that transition would go smoothly. This administration, the Obama administration, not so much in terms of doing everything they can. So I'm not buying this idea that they're all sitting around producing briefing papers and they're, they're just waiting for somebody from the incoming administration to show up so that they can you know, uh, help them out. I, I, I'm not buying that at all. I think they're being, um, if they're not being obstructionist, they're just not being helpful. They're being petulant uh, and they're all busy um, looking for other jobs now. Now, the relationship between the Trump team, Trump himself and Putin specifically, but just the Russian uh, government more generally has gotten a lot of media coverage recently, of course, because of the hack of Podesta's email account, and the DNC account. Everyone is now all in a tizzy about Russia, at least in the media. They're freaked out about this, constantly running stories on uh, people have never learned so much in their lives about the FSB and the Kremlin and the Duma and Putin. And well, this is, this a is a constant experts out there now. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of people now are brushing up on the Russian. Uh, but. I want to ask you what you think the administration's posture should be. Uh, the fact that Putin is is a strong man and a thug and that Russia plays dirty, this isn't new at all. This is just Russia. So I think it's interesting that they're exactly. reporting on this like there's been some big change. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very bizarre, surreal situation right now where you have, you know, someone like Samantha Power, you know, exiting from her position as the U.N. ambassador, giving a speech talking about how, you know, They've, they've really been trying to, you know, be tough on Russia. And, you know, Russia's been constantly, you know, um, uh, breaking with, uh, you know, uh, world community goals and, and you know, the, uh, somehow giving the impression that the Obama administration has really held their feet to the fire of all these years. That's that's something new. Uh, look, the reason why Russia has been in, engaged in sort of the shenanigans and aggressive behavior they have been uh, is because for the past eight years, there's been no pushback. Um, of any real substance. They like that the current administration likes to point to the sanctions. Well, you know, in reality, those sanctions have not damaged Putin uh, in any significant manner. They've been, they've found workarounds. So, you know, and you're right. Russia's been doing this forever. You go back to 1941 and, and back when the, uh, the, the Russians has still had a pact with the Nazis, an alliance with the Nazis. And the Russians spent at that time a great deal of time, money, and effort here in the U.S., influencing U.S. public opinion and political activity. Because what did they want? They wanted the U.S. to stay out of the war. And so they were engaged in buying off journalists and placing articles. They were engaged in setting up associations, supposedly independent groups that were supporting isolationist policies, but they were funded by the Russians. They were engaged in meddling and, and directing union activity uh, on behalf of this 
this agenda of theirs. So they've been doing this for, for a very long time, as you pointed out. Um, I think what you have to do with, with, with Putin is just treat him as sort of a simple cat that he is. Right? He's always going to do what he believes is in the best interest of Russia. He, he always will believe that the collapse of the Soviet Union was disastrous, and he'll want to put back in place some level of influence. Um, he's not going to do it solely by territory, but other ways. Um, and so as long as we deal with him in that manner, I think we're fine. You know? and, and sure, that means you know, when we can, let's try to make sure the relationship's on you know, steady footing. But we should never... And this administration, and to be fair, the Bush administration, you know, they somehow thought that they could work with him and that we, we would have similar interests and, and those interests would align on a regular basis and that we could work together. And that, that's just not going to be the case. And when it comes to the intelligence community, a lot has been made of the feud between Trump and the IC. I try to point out that it's really Trump and what he presumes are very senior leaks from the people running different agencies in the IC. You know, Trump isn't calling out every every GS-10 employee and saying, you know, you're a clown, you're the worst, right? I mean, it's not really, it's it's really between people that are political appointees and the incoming administration, or at least that's how I read it. Uh, what do you think the, what do you, if you were advising uh, the the incoming president on what could be done with the IC, he's thinking about, uh, at least the reports, he may restructure some of it, they may shrink the size of the NSC, they may make the intel community a little smaller, a little leaner and meaner, do you do you see room for that? Does that strike you as area for improvement? What do you think? What do you think about some some of the changes that that he's talked about? Yeah, no, I think it's it's a great question. It's a great point, and I think that uh, look, these things have been discussed over the years, right? So when and and some of this was lost, right? It, it got lost as it often does in his in, in in sort of the storm that surfaces around each tweet. So he has this perceived battle with the intelligence community, you know, in in, in the Twitter sphere, and. What gets lost is that during the course of those few days, they were talking, the incoming administration was talking about things such as, you know, should we look at the effectiveness of the DNI? Does it need to be restructured or dismantled? Um, we should look at devoting more time and effort to uh, the, the human reporting from the CIA rather than, you know, the technical collection. Uh, those are things that, that have been discussed, not, you know, just now, but over the past decade. And it's, it's cyclical, certainly with the CIA, and you know this, uh, that, I mean, you think after 9-11, you know, suddenly, you know, the command came down from on high that, look, you guys got you to you get more cadre. You've got to get more operations officers who can actually go out and recruit humans as opposed to this reliance on S&T. And, and that, so that, that happens periodically. Uh, I think those things are all good. I think that we should look at the effectiveness of, of the uh, the DNI. I think that was put together, not necessarily in the knee-jerk fashion, but it was certainly put together um, after in, Under duress. Under <laughs> duress, exactly. And I think that, you know, it, it would be sound to do a professional assessment of the effectiveness of it. It would be sound to look at potential redundancies within the intel community and see whether we can, as you said, you know, make it sharper, meaner, leader. And I, I, so those things are smart. And I think that um, they, you know, if they do that in the proper fashion, and if they, you know, I, what I would love to see is I'd love them to see them go over the language. I'd love them to see them have a have a, you know, have a a meeting over there. You know, all hands meeting, and and uh, you know, just create that that environment where the folks know that they've got top cover, where they know that there's an appreciation and there's an interest, because you know everybody's human, and even though I think people are smart enough to understand it on one level, I think you know that, you know that the notion. 
that they're coming in with kind of a predetermined attitude towards the intel community. He's got to work to write that a little bit, I think. I hope he does. I hope he does, too. Mike Baker is a former CIA covert operations officer. He's the president of Diligence, which is a global intelligence and security firm. He is at MB Company Man on Twitter. My Langley brother, Mike, great to have you, sir. Come back soon. Thank you, man. Love the show. Thank you very much, Buck. Take care. Take care, brother. Uh, 888-900-3393-TEAM. We will be right back. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800 600 1645 Team, dry your tears or not. Obama's last official speech as president, I think, is underway right now. Can we can we just put him on for a second? Don't get too nostalgic, team. Um, but I have enjoyed working with all of you. Uh, that does not, of course, mean that I've enjoyed every story that you have filed. Uh, but that's I'm the point of this, this relationship. You're not supposed to be syncophants. You're supposed to be skeptics. You're supposed to ask me tough questions. You're not supposed to be complimentary, uh, but you're supposed to cast were. a critical eye on folks who hold enormous power. But they did. And make sure that we are accountable to the people who sent us here. And you we have done not. that. And you have nope. uh, done it, for the most part, uh, in ways that uh, I could appreciate for fairness, even if I didn't always agree with your conclusions. Um, and having you in this building uh, has made this place work better. It keeps us honest. It makes us work harder. You have, how much easier uh, could the press have gone made us on Obama than they think did? About that's, that's interesting how we are doing what we do and right. whether or not we're able to deliver uh, on what's been requested. Uh, by our constituents. I'm hoping he's going to talk about Chelsea Manning. Uh, and, for example, every time you've asked, why haven't you cured Ebola yet, or why is there that still that hole in the Gulf, uh, it has given me the ability to go back to my team and say, will you get this solved before the next press conference? Um, I've spent a lot of time on my, Ebola? I don't uh, think in my farewell address Ebola. talking about the state of our democracy. Uh, it goes without saying that essential to that is a free press. That is part of how this place, this country, this grand experiment in self-government has to work. Uh, it doesn't work if we don't have a well-informed citizenry. And you are the conduit through which they receive uh, the information about what's taking place in the halls of power. So America needs you and our democracy what's needs this you. this big hug to the press we corps? I didn't know this was what was happening. Establish a baseline of facts and evidence that we can all right. Use as a starting point for the kind of reasoned and informed debates that ultimately lead to progress. And so my hope is is that you will continue uh, with the same tenacity that you showed us uh, to. Oh yeah, they were tenacious. Do the hard work of getting to the bottom of stories and getting them right. All right. And to push <laughs> those of I can't us take any more of this. It's uh, a classic last Obama speech here, just telling people things that. Aren't really accurate or true, and also, if they are accurate or true, it's so obvious that he doesn't need to tell us any of this. But Obama thinks that everything he says is the most profound way it's ever been said. 
So, just reminding you all, this is what we're this is what we're leaving behind. Dry your tears, my friends. It's all going to be okay. You will survive without yet another Obama lecture. I promise you. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined by Dr. Levi Tillman. He is the author of The Great Race, The Global Quest for the Car of the Future. It's an analysis of the rise of electric vehicles and the intersection between policy and innovation in the global auto industry. Dr. Tillman, great to have you. Hey, Buck. How you doing? Good. So I'm reading all these fascinating uh, think pieces and just general news reports about the coming revolution with electric cars and with ride share through driverless cars. And I, this is an area you cover what is real here? What's happening? How soon is it going to happen? And how is it going to transform the country? I know that's a lot to throw at you, so just take them one by one. Yeah, sure. Don't worry about it. So, you know, I think there are really two major challenges that we're confronting here. And the first challenge is obviously a technical challenge. And people have been really stunned how quickly we've made progress in that realm. But the second challenge is really a regulatory challenge. If you want to have autonomous vehicles, you need to have rules of the road. We need to have technical standards, and that's something that the Obama administration has actually done a terrific job of making headway on. The Department of Transportation released a set of guidelines this fall that included a a series of recommendations for autonomous vehicle manufacturers, as well as some sample guidelines for states to follow. Um, and, And I think most people would agree that that is going to be as big of a challenge going forward as the technology side of the equation. So on the on the ride share side of this, then what got me thinking we wanted to have a an, an expert on cars of the future on today was this piece I saw. I think it was the Wall Street Journal earlier in the week, might have been last week, about how Uber and Lyft and there's all these digital ride share services that are out there right now, and mm-hmm. in the future it may even be the case that people don't want to own a car because it's so easy to get the car you want to come pick you up and take you wherever you want to go, and you don't have to deal with maintenance and garage and all the rest of it, it may at least change the car culture pretty dramatically. Some people are very attached to that notion of, you know, you own your vehicle, it's your vehicle, and that's what you're going to do. Uh, but that may be shifting. How far off is that is that future of having Uber with uh, electric cars that don't have drivers that can pick you up anywhere and drop you off wherever you want to go? Oh, that, that's exactly right, Buck. The future we're going to see is one that's going to be more and more autonomous, shared, and electric. And the reason for that really comes down to the economics. Um, today, um, I own a car, but I drive that car less than 4% of the time, which means this big, expensive piece of capital is sitting unutilized on the street for the vast majority of the day. A rideshare company like Uber is going to be able to own an autonomous vehicle, um, which means they're not going to have to pay for a driver, which is by far the most expensive part of that equation. And they're going to be able to utilize that autonomous vehicle 50 or 60 percent of the time, which means that that one autonomous vehicle is going to be performing work of 30, 50, maybe even 100 non-autonomous vehicles. And the reason why I say 100 is because the other thing they're going to do is they're going to put more people into those autonomous vehicles via um, applications like Uber Pool or Lyft Line. Every time they put another individual into that car, they change the equation on emissions, they change the equation on fuel costs, and they change the equation on their own 
profit um, because that changes the the denominator um, of their cost. Can you tell people who uh, listening may not know much about Uber Pool in particular uh, because some it doesn't exist in, in all cities and towns across the country? Just give everyone a, a quick rundown on some of the way that they, these ride services currently operate and what they can do. Sure, yeah, it's really clever. So we've talked about carpooling for years, but there is a huge transaction cost in most forms of carpooling. I have to find someone who wants to go the same direction as I'm going at the same time. And what Uber Pool and Liftline do is they use advanced routing algorithms to pair people who are close to each other and are going to drive along more or less the same route. And what that means is you can dramatically cut the price of transportation while um, still being more profitable than you would if you were just giving one person a ride. So this is all driven by the economics at the end of the day. I've also seen some reports on how different kinds of vehicles because of advances in miniaturization of battery technology and the improvements in just in, in electrical engine versus an internal combustion engine there are now carbon fiber scooters that can take you uh, that can go 15 miles an hour that weigh about 20 or 30 pounds uh, and can take you for dozens of miles at a time before they need another charge I live here in New York City. There's this bicycle ride share program called City Bike. I think a lot of people would be even more interested in ride share and these sorts of uh, these sorts of new ideas for getting around if you didn't have to work so hard. <laughs> if you could just hop on and you're on a little scooter or you're on a they have some of these things that look like uh, advanced go karts, really. That seems to be another way that people are going to be getting around the city, although there will still be traffic. Right. But I just wanted you to, to hit on some of these electric vehicles of the future that aren't even necessarily cars could change the game, especially in countries like China and other places where they have different layouts in the cities and all the rest of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Buck. I mean, there has been just extraordinary progress in automotive technology over the past 10 years. And my guess would be in the next 10 years, we're going to see more innovation in the mobility space than we have in the last 100 years. And it's interesting because a lot of that innovation has come through government regulation, through things like raising the fuel economy standards, which has forced automakers to build vehicles that are more efficient, or things like California's electric vehicle mandate, where they tell automakers that if they want to sell non-electric vehicles in the state, they also have to sell electric vehicles. And by building that market out and getting increased scale in that market, we've been able to drop the price of battery electric uh, vehicles, specifically the battery in those vehicles, by more than 80 percent since 2008. And, and if we stay on the same track, they'll cost the same amount as internal combustion engine vehicles by about 2020. So this is a, a huge win for the Obama administration and a huge win for the, the power of policy in driving innovation in the global economy. So by 2020, there'll be relative uh, parity between the cost. Will, will that also be true of the, the vehicle output in terms of speed and, and uh, distances? The I was going to say fuel economy, although that's not really it, right, because it'll be electric. But the ability, <laughs> yeah, will, will they be able to go as far, as fast, as reliably in a few years? Because that's the thing right now. Cause people just want, they want a car that goes the speed they're used to, that's going to turn on when they want it to turn on. 
and that they can refuel when they need to refuel. Nobody wants to be the guy driving around at midnight with their family in the car saying, where's the electric charger station, right? I mean, these are the problems that they currently have with electric vehicles. When does that start to go away, and how is that going to go away? Well, so in terms of performance, electric vehicles are actually terrific. Um, they're, They're better than internal combustion engine vehicles. If you go out and buy a Tesla P90D, uh, that's an expensive car, but it has acceleration that's comparable to a supercar that might cost five or ten times as much. So I don't think performance is a problem. Um, range has gone up dramatically. Um, now you can purchase a Chevy Bolt, which takes you 240 miles on a single charge. And most people think that that pretty much solves the issues um, regarding electric vehicle battery range. And, and that Bolt, it's not an expensive car. After the tax credit that you get for purchasing an electric vehicle, it's $30,000. And and as we go forward, those costs are going to continue coming down uh, very dramatically. Um, and, and finally, in terms of charging speed, you know, I think that that is an issue that has to be addressed. A lot of people can charge their electric vehicles at home in a garage. But if you don't have a garage, if you don't have a place that you can park that vehicle overnight, that is, that's a significant challenge because you need somewhere where you can sit your electric vehicle for a while. The fastest charging is about 30 minutes, and that's still too long for a lot of people. Uh, but there are technology solutions that are, are being worked on to that. Um, my company actually is consulting for a really fantastic EV charging startup uh, that I think is going to deploy a solution that should largely obviate that concern. Now, so for people listening, whether they're in Dallas, Tallahassee, Toledo, or Sacramento, and everything in between and around, uh, how long is it before you can step out your front door with your smartphone, press a button, an electric vehicle without a driver picks you up and takes you where you want to go, and it's charged to your credit card, and that's it? Because that seemed to be the vision that people are laying out for Uber, which is already a multi-multi-billion dollar company, and it's going to have huge effects on the car industry. And how, how far away is that reality? based on what you're seeing sure, now. You know, it's not just Uber, it's Ford, it's Tesla, it's Toyota, and it's Google. And all of these companies realize that the mobility market is going to be a much bigger opportunity than the auto manufacturing market. Today, the auto manufacturing market is about $2.3 trillion. In the future, um, companies that are going to have to transform into mobility companies, which is, which is great because that market is $5.4 trillion and growing and so it's a much bigger pie that they can get a piece of and and i would guess that a lot of the answer to your question really depends on smart regulation and on people embracing the power of smart pragmatic regulations to facilitate that deployment but my guess would be no later than 2025. dr dr tillman usually regulation is a dirty word here on this show but we will we'll let you we'll let it, let it go because of your expertise <laughs> well, you know, and we, Find, I, I, we find the subject it, interesting. I, I, one more for you, you know, though. It, Speaking it, it of really, markets. It really, it really shouldn't be a dirty word. No, no, I, it, that, that's is, a joke, Doc. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm our, kidding. Our, it's okay. But I, I, but but I, I want to ask you one more thing. Uh, employment. Our, our Uber currently employs, just, I think, a, a couple million a couple million people. If all this happens, what then? What, we're going to lose a lot of jobs, right? Isn't, isn't that also a concern with the, the, the future of transportation, leveraging Google and Tesla and everything else? Oh, my. Well, let me just say, Buck, that regulation is very, very important. If we didn't have regulation, we'd be getting sick from the food that we eat. We wouldn't be able to trust the medicine that we take um, because we wouldn't know <laughs> if it was actually effective. And quite frankly, we wouldn't be able to drive down our streets because everything from the lines down the road 
the stoplights are the product of regulation. I know, Doc. I, I'm not. I'm not actually an anarchist. I was. I was kidding about regulation, but I would like you to speak about employment while we've got you. We've only got about a minute and change. Sure thing. So definitely, there are going to be huge issues regarding labor markets. Uh, my company works on those issues quite a bit. Um, right now, one of the big problems that people are looking towards is truckers and what's going to happen with their jobs. Um, in 30 states, trucking is actually the largest employer, and autonomous trucking is just on the horizon. So, so that's an issue that we're going to have to confront going forward. And unfortunately, um, companies are geared towards one thing, which is making money, and that means cutting out labor. So again, you're going to have to have governments in there making sure that people are somehow going to be employed and going to be able to have jobs, even as automation and roboticization cuts out humans from a lot of these processes. All right. Dr. Levi Tillman is the author of The Great Race, The Global Quest for the Car of the Future. Uh, thanks for joining us, Levi. We appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate having you, you having me on. All right. There we go. Well, just regulated our way out of this interview. Back in a few. Very funny reactions from some of you. Uh, look, I, I'm willing to have people of different different political philosophy on the show, especially if they're going to be in an area of, of expertise um, that's specific to something they're writing about. Or, that was just really funny. I'm like, dude, am I really gonna am I really gonna get lectured on regulation right now? It was actually a joke. Just tell me about just tell me about electric cars. I try, I try. Oh gosh, that was uh, that was interesting. Um, with the left, even even when you think you're you're reaching a, a non you're having a non political discussion, it so quickly can get all political and uncomfortable. And I try to be you know I invite people into my home, which the Freedom Hut is my home. And I want to be nice to everybody, um, except I never get angry left wing callers, which I would like. It'd be fun to get some some left wingers who want to who want to really argue about some stuff that I'd be up for. But and not too much of it, though. Sometimes it can be entertaining. Uh, the New York Times reporting the Earth sets a, a temperature record for the third straight year. Um, this is what the Times reports on this one, marking another milestone for a changing planet. Planets always changing. Scientists reported on Wednesday that the Earth reached its highest temperature on record in 2016, trouncing a record set only a year earlier, which beat one set in 2014. It's the first time in the modern era of global warming data that temperatures have blown past the previous record three years in a row. Okay, so if it's getting hotter every year, which it's not, but if it is, can we go back to calling it global warming? Why do we call it climate change? I think they should have to stick to this. Because if we see that next year or the year after that, there is no change or there is no warming, I want to know why. Because we're supposed to be getting warmer every year. That's why, it's, that's why it's global warming, right? This is what they say the science tells us. Quote, the data shows that politicians cannot wish the problem away. The earth is heating up, a point long beyond serious scientific dispute. This is a quote from this. Well, if that's the case, why, why have they gone from global warming to climate change if it's so clear that it's getting hotter why can't we just say that it's getting hotter why do we have to say that the temperature is in a period of flux oh because they needed to rebrand this whole thing while they figured out how to massage the data or change the data or alter it so that then they could start saying it was getting hotter again this is i wish we could have discussions scientific discussions that are actually based in science but 
just turns into another political food fight. You know, why is it not getting hotter? Oh, because we need more regulations, maybe? Oh, snap. Crazy. Uh, team, thank you for listening to today's show. As always, I'll be back tomorrow on the next day, of course. Um, let me know your thoughts on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, looking forward to hanging with you tomorrow. As always, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.